Hello, this is Jamie Livingston and Hanako Gallagher, and we are Undecided, Undecided California. California. First off, we want to just say that this episode will be covering some really sensitive topics and may not be suitable for all listeners. So if you're more easily triggered by sexual assaults or discussion of sexual assaults or anything like that, this might not be the podcast for you. Another disclaimer is just our personal one. This episode was very hard to record. It was emotionally draining because it was just, yeah. It was very in-depth. We got a lot of detail out of this case, but it's also just a really hard topic to discuss And that being said, just because we have an opinion on this topic does not mean we agree with every point made by the side we agree with or we disagree with every point made by the side we oppose. It's not 100% either way. We just kind of fell into this middle ground. And yeah, let's just go right into it. We're talking today about the recall of Judge Persky in Santa Clara County, which is a county we both reside in. So So the, the main catalyst for bringing the recall up to vote was this case you you probably heard about, the Brock Turner case. And this was a sexual assault, which the, the incident occurred in January of 2015 on Stanford campus. Turner was found sexually assaulting a woman after leaving a Stanford frat party, and both were heavily intoxicated. Uh, yeah, two bypassers saw Brock Turner assaulting the woman and they ran over to see what was going on and in the commotion Brock Turner ran away from them and they had to tackle him to detain him while they sought help for the woman who had been assaulted which is pretty disturbing and she was unconscious at the scene she yes her blood alcohol was 0.24 percent which is three times the legal limit So she had alcohol poisoning at that point. So the trial occurred in March of 2016, so the next year, and he was ultimately found guilty on three counts. So sexual penetration of an unconscious woman, sexual penetration of an intoxicated woman, and assault with intent to commit rape. Brock Turner was sentenced to six months in county jail with three years probation and a lifetime status as a sex offender. This... Sentence was the the controversial part of the case. So Persky received a lot of backlash. This sentence was seen as extremely lenient by many individuals, especially because Emily Doe, who is the anonymous victim in this case, published her letter to the court stating how traumatizing not only being assaulted was, but going through this judicial process was, and how infuriating it was to have a guilty verdict, to have eyewitnesses, to have all this evidence come forward, and him only receive six months in county jail, when the minimum was two years in prison. Right. And the prosecution was asking for six years in prison. Right, so the general public sentiment is that Persky gave an overly lenient sentence and that he's exhibited a pattern, not just in this case, but in prior cases of of bias in favor of particularly young, white, and college athlete uh, defendants. So there's about six or seven cases brought forth, including Brock Turner's, where there has been a pattern identified by the pro-recall campaign. 
This was reviewed by the Commission on Judicial Performance, and they found no bias based off of these cases. They gave a description for each case, and we looked over like and found a pattern that most of the cases had either a plea deal going on or and or had a probation report that suggested a lenient sentence. How did this get on the ballot? Yeah, after there was this big public backlash, this petition was drawn up to put the recall on our ballot for June. And they needed 20% of Santa Clara County voters to to sign it, and they, they did reach that. Almost 100,000 people ended up signing the petition. So we interviewed two individuals from both campaigns, so one individual from each campaign, and the one speaking for the anti-recall campaign who we talked to first is Judge Ladoris Cordell. She attended Stanford Law School and was the only black female student in her graduating class, which is pretty impressive. She held a private practice in East Palo Alto right after finishing law school. She served as a judge for 19 years and was appointed by Governor Jerry Brown during his first term in office and was also the independent police auditor for San Jose after completing her career as a judge. The second person that we interviewed in this episode is Professor Michelle Dauber, who's, who's heading the pro Rico campaign. She's a current professor at Stanford Law School, as well as a sociology professor, and she's been a member of the faculty there since 2001. How we are going to structure this episode is by explaining a topic or a question covered in both interviews, playing each campaign's official response, and then giving our analysis. Our first question was, what are the overarching principles being debated in this recall? Both gave pretty Kundry answers, the recall of Judge Persky, which we were like, yeah, we know. <laughs> but we're trying to get into what the emotion is behind it. And they both gave really two differing opinions. Here is the pro-recall spokesperson, Michelle Dauber's official response. Many things that have been the subject of social movements throughout our history have been legal, but we're wrong, and our campaign um, is part of a national social movement that is cutting across all segments of society and all industries that is aimed at ending the culture of impunity for high-status offenders who commit sexual harassment or violence against women. So that was Michelle Dauber's take on it. She basically says, you know, just because it's legal doesn't mean it was right and doesn't mean it shouldn't be punished. Um, Judge Cordell has a very different opinion of this. What I believe this, this campaign and this election, this recall is all about, is about facts versus dishonesty. This campaign seeking the recall, in my view, is the most dishonest campaign I have ever, ever seen. It is based entirely on misrepresentations and lies and that is the reason why I and five other folks, mostly women, uh, who have lived their lives as feminists and people who we consider ourselves liberals and progressives, why we were speaking out, because we began looking at the facts and were stunned by what we found and what this campaign is saying. Judge Cordell makes the point that this campaign is mostly focused on dishonesty, and she says that there's a lot of misrepresentation of Judge Persky throughout this pro-recall campaign. That's what they both think it means. I think we came up to separate conclusions of what we think the actual arguments are based off of, but we'll give that 
synopsis at the end. The next theme we identified was the sentencing in the case. Both parties have vastly different views of what the sentencing in the case should have been and what was the appropriate sentence to take. So we're going to start off with Michelle Dauber's input about what she believes the appropriate sentence was. On the uh, assault with intent to commit rape charge, that charge normally carries a two-year minimum. Um, and by law, that charge is not supposed to be eligible for probation. So once the jury convicted Mr. Turner of that count, he was facing two years in prison minimum. His maximum exposure was 14, and the district attorney asked for six years. And the reason they asked for six years was that he lied to the court, and his victim was completely unconscious and helpless, and that is an aggravating factor. So they asked for the middle range, not 14, but also not two. But he was supposed to be sentenced to at least two years. And the law that existed at that time and is still the law now is that in order to give him any less than two years, the judge had to make a special exception for him uh, and deviate below that minimum. And the judge had to do that by finding that this was an unusual case and the interest of justice required probation. So Dauber is saying that... Judge Persky didn't do what any other judge would do, that he made a special exception for this defendant because of who the defendant was, and that by law in general, this crime deserves two years in prison or more. And Judge Cordell has a very different view of this. She says the guidelines dictate a much different sentence that aligns more with Judge Persky's. Any reasonable judge who has read the file, I've read the file, if you look at the transcript, read the probation report, and by transcript, I mean the sentencing transcript. This is not a prison case. Why do I say that? When we sentence, we are supposed to follow the law, look at all the facts, look at credibility of witnesses, and then there's something called the rules of court. And the rules of court have the sentencing guidelines. Again, most people don't know this, but we judges are told, if you want to impose a sentence, if it's prison or jail, you still have to state your reasons why. And these are the guidelines from which you choose. And there are about 17. But if you choose, you know, 1, 5, and 3, and 9, that's fine. You have to state it on the record. And if you're wrong, if you've abused your discretion, you'll be reversed. Somebody will appeal it one of the two parties. So what Judge Persky did is what I would have done. I would have looked at the guidelines. And what he did, and by the way, for those who say, oh, he was, you know, he didn't pay any attention to Emily Doe, that's a lie. Read the transcript. It's online. You can look at the sentencing transcript, and you'll see two things. You'll see what Judge Persky said, but you'll also hear what Brock Turner said. Because the other lot side, the recall people say, and Brock Turner showed no remorse. That's a lie. So at sentencing, he spoke and he expressed his remorse and in his interview with the probation officer who prepared the pre-sentence report that is online as well, he expressed absolute sincere remorse to the probation officer. So Judge Cordell's point is that this wasn't just kind of made up by the judge. There was a recommendation going forth by the probation officer saying that this individual would be much more likely to be rehabilitated through jail sentence and probation. Both of these opinions kind of go in wildly different areas and cover vastly different topics within the judicial system. One is focusing much more on the judge's discretion and the ability to make 
a decision on a particular case through his own eyes of what is suitable for justice at that time. And the other one is saying, no, these need to be very structured and not as lenient and not as looking at the other outside influences in the case. And that's Michelle Dauber's take. So do you think either side would you say is more in line with the facts? I think they have two different points they're making that are coming from two different sides of the argument. I don't necessarily know if either one is wrong in their like assumptions of what was the proper thing to do, but that's because the laws are really up into interpretation. That's why we have Supreme Courts. That's why we have judicial courts in the system. If laws were just cut and dry, then officers would be able to make the decision if someone broke the law or not. But we don't. They're up to interpretation, and they do require the ability to analyze the situation. The second major theme that we chose to look at was Judge Persky's history during his time on the Superior Court and what you can say about his cases and what you can't say. We're going to actually start off with the anti-recall campaign, first of all, and hear what they have to say about the matter. Well, I, I haven't made a study of all of his cases, and neither has the other side, so I want to make that clear. The other side has not looked at all of his 2,000 criminal cases. They have cherry-picked five cases and said, oh, here's a pattern. Well, five cases out of 2,000 is one quarter of 1%. That's not a pattern, no matter how you look at it. Uh, So I haven't had a chance to do that. But if I just look at those five cases they've cherry-picked, every one of them shows he's tried to temper punishment with mercy. Judge Cordell's point is that he's not necessarily someone who just gives lenient sentences to individuals with privilege or student athletes, he is someone who more likely is going to follow the path of rehabilitation over punishment for most cases, and not necessarily just these five cases in particular. Mm -hmm. I think if you're going to show a pattern, the pro-recall side does have to show times where the judge was way harsher to people who were of color and were not athletes at the same time. Right. And there's not really been a pattern of that shown either. And five out of 2,000 cases is not a pattern. Yeah, statistics major, what do you have to say about it? (laughs) Well, if you have 2,000 data points, you can pick, you can have your narrative and then pick five cases that will match your narrative. And you could make Persky look any number of ways depending on which cases you choose. We're going to listen to Michelle Dauber's take on it next. So here that is. In point of fact, Judge Persky did in fact violate the law in another sentence that involved a different athlete. This uh, young man's name is Gunderson, and he played uh, college football at Foothill College, um, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with since you're from Palo Alto. And um, he came from a very Stanford-connected family. Uh, his mom went to Stanford around the same time as Judge Persky, and she's an executive with a tech firm. And his sister went to Stanford and graduated recently. And Mr. Gunderson um, uh, severely beat his uh, girlfriend. He punched her multiple times in the face, injuring her jaw. He choked her, and then he pushed her headfirst out of a car. And he entered a plea uh, to felony domestic violence. But um, in between the time of his arrest and the time of his plea, 
he got some interest from the University of Hawaii football team, and his goal was to play Division One football. And so Judge Persky allowed him to leave the state of California and go to Hawaii in order to pursue that goal without putting him on probation or anything. He deferred his sentencing for over a year and let him leave the state with no supervision, no probation, and no monitoring. And that is, in fact, unlawful. That did break the law. You cannot send a felon from one state to another state without notifying the receiving state and making sure that the the felon is properly supervised. And so he was unsupervised, and he uh, didn't do anything he was supposed to do. He didn't do batter's classes, and he didn't, you know, he didn't comply with any of the terms he was given. He got cut from the football team. He dropped out of school, and then he left, and he went to a third state, state of Washington, which was also not notified, where he was rearrested for domestic violence against another victim. That is an example of unlawful uh, handling of a case um, in favor of a college athlete in order to give that athlete a break that he, you know, probably should not have had. And so if you, you know, if some of your listeners feel it's important to have evidence that Judge Persky behaved unlawfully, there it is. But from our perspective, you know, the thing that we are trying to challenge is, you know, unfair social relations that treat women in an unreasonable in an unreasonable way and deny women access to justice. So, you know, that that is what we think is important here. First of all, I just want to say to Michelle Dauber, yes, it is important for our listeners to know about illegal activity and they should care about that. And that should actually be more of an overarching point than just disliking someone's decision. But that's just my personal opinion about that. <laughs> I don't think the lawfulness aspect should just be brushed off the way that she did. I think even Judge Cordell would say, if we could show that Persky was behaving unlawfully, then a recall might be justified. So I think it's important to note that Persky may have been behaving unlawfully in the Gunderson case. Yeah, so the Commission on Judicial Performance, their report covers the Gunderson case, but it only talks about how he was given a misdemeanor originally and then he did not comply with those conditions that she mentions earlier on and then it's revoked and it's leveled up to a felony charge but they don't talk about the mishandling of the probation and informing the correct agencies upon traveling from a state to another state which is an issue definitely and i'm not sure if that's oversight on the judge's part or if that's blame disregard for the rules of law. Regardless, we're digging so deep into this one other case when supposedly there's this huge pattern of misconduct in Persky's past. I think the Gunderson case is interesting, but I don't think that it's like, should be a pivotal factor in the way that you vote in the recall. It seems irresponsible, but it doesn't seem like it's a pattern or a clue to a larger pattern that's being presented. It kind of seems like a standalone. If you look at the other cases that have been shown to support the pro-recall side, they all have explanations of why they were ruled that way, either through the probation report or the ability for the prosecution and the defense to come together and create a plea deal. And they're all based off plea deals. Brock Turner's case is the only one where it was before a jury and the jury decided the verdict. Most of the other ones are plea deals. You're gonna get a lighter sentence if you have a plea deal. That's just automatic. That's why you make a plea deal. You don't make a plea deal 
unless you think you're gonna get something out of it. Bleeding into our next topic, this ruling was so controversial, it led to a law change. Uh, two laws were changed in particular. One was uh, Assembly Bill 2888. So what did that cover exactly? So this Assembly Bill was drafted by the Santa Clara County District Attorney, Jeff Rosen. The goal was to harshen the minimum sentence for sexual assault of an unconscious or intoxicated person. So previously, the law gave you a lighter sentence if your victim was intoxicated or unconscious versus a conscious or sober victim. I don't know the exact reasoning behind that, but I think the idea is a conscious victim is fighting back and a conscious victim is more aware and liable to be traumatized by the event. There's less ambiguity with a conscious victim. In terms of consent. Mm-hmm. Which is something that we as a society are overcoming the excuses that a gray area somehow makes a crime more acceptable when it doesn't. Yeah. There's also another bill that was passed, and that was Assembly Bill uh, 701, and that expands the legal definition of rape in California. Now all forms of non-consensual sexual assault are considered rape, whereas before, rape was only seen as forced intercourse, sexual intercourse, and not necessarily digital penetration or penetration with a foreign object. This is what we meant by graphic, guys. These laws are not something to get around with. Yeah, it gets heavy. It gets real heavy and real so quick. And so something that the anti-recall, some members of the anti-recall campaign have brought up is that Turner technically is not convicted of rape. So this law changes that so in the future, future Brock Turners will be convicted rapists and will receive a harsh, harsher sentence because of that. Michelle Dauber and Judge Cordell have vastly different interpretation of what this law change means. We're going to first play you Judge Cordell's interpretation of what the law change means for the recall campaign and what it means for sexual assault victims. The law has now been changed. In 2016, the law was changed. Um, And Jeff Rosen, the district attorney of Santa Clara County, led the charge and said, and he's been quoted, there's nothing wrong with the judge, nothing wrong with Judge Persky, there was something wrong with the law. Now, the law at the time Judge Persky presided over the Brock Turner case was that these crimes for which Brock Turner was convicted, none of which was rape, the judge could either give a jail sentence, grant probation, or deny probation, put him on parole, and sentence him to prison. So the judge had the option. The female probation officer in the case recommended jail and recommended six months. So Judge Persky opted to follow that recommendation and stated why on the record. Now the law has changed, and so there is no longer an option for any judge in California to impose a jail sentence. Judge Cordell's main point here is that the pro-recall campaign already got what they wanted. They already have harshened the punishments for future criminals like Brock Turner. And so why do they need to recall the judge when the judge can't do what he did to anyone else? And I think to that, Michelle Dauber makes a really good point about what having to recall, having to change a law really means in terms of the Judge Persky decision. I think it's interesting that what we have in the Persky case is a judge who so abused his discretion and made such a terrible decision 
that our state legislature had to literally change the law and implement a new mandatory minimum in response to prevent any other judge from ever committing that abuse of discretion in the future, that somehow that would be a reason to leave that judge on the bench. You know, as a result of that outrageous and inappropriate sentence, the legislature passed a law to prevent other judges from giving a similar sentence in the future. I don't think that is a is a reason to vote for Judge Persky. You know, if you screw up your job so badly that the legislature has to pass a law to prevent anyone else from screwing up that badly in the future, that's not a reason that you should keep your job. And so I don't think that um, it makes sense to say, you know, he did a terrible job. We've passed a law to prevent anyone else from doing a terrible job that's similar, but you should retain him. You know, the fact is that voters have lost confidence in his ability to be fair. Um Vote, jurors wouldn't sit in his courtroom. The district attorney uh, disqualified him from hearing the next sexual assault case to come in front of him after the Turner case was decided. Um, and we have 1,500 other judges who have not abused their discretion in this manner. So from our perspective, it makes more sense to vote out the one bad judge than it does to pass a law to prevent those 1,500 other judges from acting in a similar way. So that gets a little confusing. I mean, I do agree with her point that if you screw up your job so badly that they have to change the entire law, it doesn't really exactly bode well for your decision. No. It kind of maybe highlights an underlying issue within your decision. Then again, that raises the question, just because your decision was unpopular, does it mean it was unlawful? We have legislators in that position to enact changes in law when the public reacts and says, you know, we don't agree with this. That's why there are representatives. They represent our views. But does that mean judges are held to the same standard of being able to respond and adequately react to the public opinion? And are they responsible to react to the public opinion? And I think that's what comes down to the basis of this argument was just because a judge made an unpopular decision, was he acting outside the boundaries of the law? Was he acting outside the boundaries of the sentencing protocol? And, you know, Michelle Dauber says, yeah, he was supposed to give him at least two years in federal prison. And Judge Cordell is like, nope, he was following these guidelines. He was following the probation report. He's allowed to use his discretion. Yeah, I think... Well, neither side would argue that what he did was unlawful, but the way that they sort of interpret that decision is, like you said, pretty much opposite. Um, and I, I don't feel like targeting the judge for a questionable law is necessarily the best plan of action. I'm not sure it really changes anything. I'm not sure it really changes how sexual assault victims are going to be treated. I'm not sure it's going to change the culture in our court systems. I'm not sure that this judge's decision was just an independent decision on him going against all the other factors in the world. I think it would be strange if after his like first 2,000 cases, he suddenly decided he was going to like go against what everyone else would have done. I don't think there's enough in a pattern to suggest that this decision was somehow out of the ordinary. 
or this this decision was somehow a pattern of other behaviors he has conducted where he just ignores the victim and totally takes the assaulter side. Right. And I think if he did have a pattern of that, then we would also see like a substantial history of him being his decisions being appealed by the prosecution. And it is compelling to note that both the Associated Press and the Commission on Judicial Performance found no bias in his decision-making skills and his ability to run a courtroom. Right. So, I mean, does being unpopular make you unlawful? Or make you unfit to be in your position? I don't know. I mean, if you're... I think this gets into a greater point that Judge Cordell talks about and I'll play you this clip really quick where she talks about the ability of judges to be independent and what this really vote comes down to is judicial independence. If we lose judicial independence, our democracy falters. Ruth Bader Ginsburg once said that judicial independence is a priceless constitutional gift. The recall has said, and Marcus Cole was quoted in the Mercury News, uh, saying, judicial independence is not sacrosanct. That's his quote. In a debate with me, he said, we don't need judges who are independent. And he also said, judges better watch out. That's the message of the recall. That is directly contradictory to judicial independence, which is, we must, judges, focus on the law and the facts like laser, like a laser, and not be influenced by what we think people will think about us or be influenced by public opinion. Finally, judges are not politicians. The other side keeps saying, oh, they're just politicians. We are not. What are politicians? I can tell you because I was a politician. I ran for the Palo Alto City Council, and I won. And how did I do it? Like all politicians, we make promises to the electorate. I went out in the community and said, if you elect me, I'm going to you know, do X, Y, and Z, talk about traffic, get that playground fixed up over there. We, politicians, make promises, and then we get in office and do what people want us to do. Judges are not politicians. We take an oath to uphold the law. And there's nothing in the oath that says, oh, and judges, I also pledge and swear to do whatever public opinion says I should do. That's not in our oath. Our oath is to uphold the law of the state of California, uphold the Constitution of the United States, and the Constitution of California. So we are completely different from that. And if we don't have judicial independence, something the recall says, it's not sacrosanct and we don't need it, that's outrageous. And for that reason alone, people should vote against this recall. I think that makes a valid point that are we really going to risk judicial independence for something that is not necessarily on the most solid of foundations that has been repeatedly shown to not hold necessarily bias and that it's up to interpretation of these five cases that is very minimal in comparison to the rest of his cases that there's a pattern that has also been overruled and said there was no pattern, that these cases are just part of the system as a whole. And I think that gets to a greater, broader question of what does this whole of society really treat sexual assault victims and can we really blame one individual for a whole of society? Right. 
and is it worth having other judges looking over their shoulder, not just in sexual assault cases, but in in any criminal case, and potentially giving harsher sentences than are warranted for a lot of crimes. Yeah, and when we asked Michelle Dauber about that, this was her response. So I definitely have heard uh, that argument that the recall is bad for judicial independence. And um, first of all, that's not true. As I said, um, judges like Judge Persky are elected and they're not fully independent like federal judges. They're accountable to the people they serve. I believe the argument that you're talking about um, is related to that, which is that if judges see that our recall has succeeded, they will start imposing harsh sentences on everyone in order to avoid being recalled themselves. First of all, let me just say, I have more faith in judicial integrity than that. I don't believe that judges will look at people that they don't think deserve to go to jail, but start locking them up because they're afraid of being recalled. That that idea has within it a very dim view of judicial integrity that I don't share. Her take is basically, judges will be fine. They're smart enough that this won't affect them at all. I, I don't know if that really has a basis in anything. I think any person, no matter how how good they are at their job, like, if they see that they're in danger of losing it, or that, you know, this threat has come over their independence are going to act differently. Yeah, I think we all are shaped by society. I think, like, the social contract is a very embedded thing within the human race. And when you are allowed a position where you can make decisions independently and you're not subject to that public opinion and you're only subject to the laws and your new social contract is with laws and not necessarily human relations... And that's taken away, and all of a sudden you are subject to the public opinion, even though they might not correlate with what the laws uh, dictate. That is a very nerve-wracking thing, and that's going to cause anyone to act differently. That's not necessarily going to just go away. And I think Judge Cordell makes a really good point when she talks about how she's been, how individuals have been reaching out to her because they're concerned about this. This recall, because it is so unique, is a threat to judicial independence. So the other side says, well, wait a minute. There were three other recalls, and judges did just fine, and there was no, they weren't looking over their shoulders and afraid to make rulings. That is true because those recalls were very different from this one. And so it's apples and oranges. Those other three recalls, look at them, read the cases, and they are cases where, as I said, there were just this demonstrated track records of either breaking the law or doing really bad stuff. This is the first where somebody good hasn't done anything wrong. So in our view, it's already happening, by the way. This attempt to recall him has already had an impact throughout the state. So I have received emails. I've gotten one from L.A. where a lawyer has said this whole Persky effect, I prefer to call it the Dauber effect, has gotten judges even in L.A. where they're afraid to do anything that might look lenient, which means for me, you know, less harsh punishment, tempering it with mercy, when the circumstances require it, that they're, they're just afraid to do it. 
there are judges on the Santa Clara County Superior Court who have said, no, I'm not going to go along with a plea bargain, even though it's what the DA wants and what the defense wants because they're afraid that recall petitions are going to be waived at them. So it's having an impact already. So for the other side to say, no, it's not going to happen, it's already happening. My concern is that the other side, one, doesn't get it, doesn't really understand what judicial independence is. You can be smart and still be scared. Yeah. And I think, arguably, the smarter people are going to be the most scared. Yeah. Because um, they're already thinking ahead to how is how are my actions now going to be perceived in the future. Yeah. I mean, I think that also gets back to what your opinion on, like, the judicial system is. If you think that it needs reform, you think people need to be rehabilitated more often, if you think that we need a less greater emphasis on the prison system and putting people into jail automatically, then this might be a troubling sign for you, this route overall. And I think that it really is a greater issue to everything that's going on. So I think well, something that we've talked about a lot is that the two sides are not really arguing two sides of the same coin. They, they're making arguments that don't exactly intersect. And so that's what makes it even harder uh, to decide where you stand as, as a voter. There's a lot that they agree on. They agree that his decision was lawful. They agree that the sentence could have been harsher. I think they're arguing what the message is going to be sent based off of this recall vote. And the anti-recall side is saying it's going to send a message to judges that their subjectivity is in danger and they need to bow to the power of the people in order to make any decisions. And they're not only accountable and held to the statutes of the law, they're held to the demands of the individuals, which is not supposed to be what's going on. Like that's, It's enshrined in our constitution to give them independence away from the opinions of the people and the public. And what Michelle Dauber is saying is that it's different. It's based off of what the message is going to be sent to sexual assault victims. And she says it right, really clearly right here. A wide-ranging impact of the decision is that it will um, encourage more victims of sexual violence to come forward. One of the negative uh, impacts of the Turner sentence is that it, I think, sent a very powerful message to victims of sexual assault that um, they should not bother coming forward and reporting the crimes that have happened to them because even if the police make an arrest, which is rare, and even if the district attorney brings charges, which is also rare, and even if there's a trial, even rarer still, and the defendant is convicted by the jury, as he was in Mr. Turner's case, even if you have um, physical evidence, eyewitnesses, you know, a promptly conducted rape kit, all of the things that the victim in this case had going in her favor, the judge can let that offender off with a sentence so light that it really makes a mockery of the entire procedure. I agree. I think the argument that she's making that there are so many hurdles to getting your sexual assault case to trial and, and bringing justice to the offender it's true, but I don't know that removing this one judge who makes up one piece of this hierarchy is the best move. I think she's highlighting a greater point, which is that 
individuals are so fed up with the system and individuals are so scared of coming forward about the abuse they've suffered and about the attacks they've suffered because they don't see any results coming from all that pain and suffering of them having to relive the trauma and fight for their cause and say no this was wrong and she believes that the recall of Persky will send a message that you know you are empowered you are more likely to be heard and I personally am not sure that's true I don't necessarily know if if recalling this judge is going to change people's interpretations of the judicial system. And that's what we need. We need a change in how we handle sexual assault. And recalling a judge doesn't change that. It just is a victory. It's almost like like a symbolic victory, not necessarily a change in the way things are conducted. And are we really going to risk all of our judicial sanctity, our judicial integrity for a symbolic victory for sexual assault? Not that sexual assault victims don't deserve symbolic wins, that they don't deserve symbolic anything, that they don't deserve more. Sexual assault victims have been through hell. This is an experience every single woman has almost gone through. At least you've been harassed or sexually assaulted or some type of like, workplace violence like everyone's gone through something and it's disgusting and it's harassment and it's horrible and it's not something we should have to bear on our own but does that mean recalling this judge is going to change that does that mean what's going to happen is going to be different is what does this recall of the judge mean and what does it mean to the other side they're arguing two different sides of the coin and it, Arguments are difficult in general when you're arguing the same point. When you're arguing two different points on the same subject, it's really difficult. And that's what's going on in this case. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I don't think anyone on the anti-recall side would say, like, they don't want voices of sexual assault victims to be heard. And they don't think that reform needs to happen. I think they just would advocate for reform that's not ousting this one judge that's more like legal reform which has already started happening but it's obviously not enough so that was the episode and this is by far the hardest episode we've had to make definitely feeling the more we look into it the more we research the more people we talk to the more confusing it becomes so we don't blame you if you're completely lost at this point because so are we for real <laughs> we, we tried our best to give due respect to all parties while also maintaining a critical eye in terms of forming our own opinions. Hopefully you learned something from this episode and you're feeling better and more prepared to make a decision yourself. Yeah. Um, if you think we missed anything or if you'd like to learn more about the Persky recall and the Turner case, you can check out our blog at undecidedcalifornia.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at undecidedca. And we finally got approved by Apple Podcasts. Woo! So you can now follow us and download episodes by searching for Undecided California on the iTunes store. Yeah, go check it out. And subscribe and write a review. Write a review. Yeah, give us five stars. Give us five stars, guys. Don't forget about Election Day, which is next Tuesday, June 5th. I don't know how many times I have to say this. Uh-oh. It's June 5th, next Tuesday. You better be registered. You better be ready. You better have done all your research. 
And sorry if you're wearing headphones right now. I'm really pumped about this. <laughs> um, join us next Thursday. So we're going to be one day late, uh, but we'll be recapping the election results and giving our final thoughts. Thanks for listening. Bye.